0: You're listening to Farm to Tabor. This time we've got Tamara Haspel. She is a journalist and oyster farmer based in Massachusetts. We met on Twitter where she does a lot of deep dives into nutrition science, which is something I don't touch with a 10-foot pole. So I love that she's out there doing the darn thing. She's got such a wealth of knowledge, she's going to talk about agribusiness, the mythology of homesteading, the oyster life cycle, and land tenure when your land is underwater and also your neighbors are super fancy because your farm is inside Cape Cod. She's going to start us off talking about agribusiness and respectability politics. Take it away, Tamar. Everything in
1: agriculture is sort of.
0: This one particular way of doing things. Yeah. Um, And it's
1: real hard to break out.
0: Yeah, it's it's so rough because, you know, again, working in agriculture, I have seen so many people doing things so well, and they're usually the exception, and they're often kind of shunned for it because, like, they're weird. They're doing stuff weird. And I don't think that's something that most folks understand. And in some ways, this whole, like, save family farms thing is really just exaggerating agriculture's worst impulses, and no one realizes we're doing it. I, I absolutely agree, and I, I see it on on both
1: sides. On the sort of anti ag people are saying, "Save the family farm, save the family farm," <laughs> and they don't understand yeah. what's going on. But then the big ag people are mm-hmm. saying, "We are family farms," mm-hmm. ignoring the fact that the gist of the pro the, of the complaint really isn't about the familyness of it; it's mm-hmm. about all those other things. And it drives me nuts.
0: No. right? Yeah, there's. I think there's. Um, kind of this impression among non-farming folks that there's like a big canyon or a divide, like you're either a family farm or you're corporate. And you're like, no, the vast majority of what you're calling corporate farming is being done by individual family farms. It might be because they're a franchise of like a poultry or swine grower, but like they're using corporate practices and they're family owned. And we can go into the history of why those decision happened, like why those family farms decided to become contractors, you know, and, and subcontractors for corporate farms, but bottom line, they are the same people. And it's just really interesting mental gymnastics to kind of watch people like, you know, like love this, love the sinner, but hate the sin, but also they, they think they're two different things. And you're like, this is the right. same people you've because just been hate hating farmers. Yeah. And they'll <laughs> jump through all kinds of cognitive hoops to yeah. make sure that it's
1: Monsanto they're blaming yeah. and not the guy who's actually riding the combine.
0: Exactly, yeah. And it's, I don't know. Um Again, there are so many farms that I've run into over the course of work who really are doing things differently. They are breaking the mold. And again, um, because they're breaking the mold, they're shunned. And like agribusiness really has this see agribusiness, but just like the the good old boy way of doing things has this like mind grip over the rural areas. And I know, I know. Yeah, and the people who stick out of that and really kind of try and do things right are shunned by the other family farmers. And I feel like the people go to the farmer's market so they think they know what's going on because they're like, Well, I talked to my farmer. Well, either they were a reseller and they lied to you, um, they're a good old boy and they lied to you, or they're like the one in a million, like <laughs> You know, actual small farmer who, like, maybe came in from a second career, they may or may not actually be self-supporting. The odds are they're not. They're working some other job. So mm-hmm. people think they know what's going on because they go to the farmer's markets. And I just, oh, my God, no.
1: I, I, it, it, I, I think I wrote about that once. Because, yeah. it, I mean, even if you come out with me and see my farm, yeah, you have what the implications are how it's different from other farms whether I'm lying about about things you you just you have no idea
0: yeah yeah and Rebecca Seidel um, at Case in My Cells just wrote about this within the last week or two too she's like you have no idea what's going on like even if you've been there and I've definitely found this as a farm inspector number one it took me a long time to kind of develop an eye for what normal is and number two, like, I'm just there for one day. There's certain amounts of things that I can see. I can kind of look under the hood and pick some things up, but there's I guarantee you there's all kinds of hinky stuff going on there that I still won't know about. And right, so it's, right. oh, it just drives me crazy when folks think they go to a farmer's market so they know what's happening. You're <laughs> like, no. <laughs>
1: well, it's, I have a friend who, who said, you know, people think that because they can write the grocery list, they can write. Mm-hmm. People think that because they can grow an herb garden, they can farm. And and they, they, or because they eat, they can understand this, and yeah. and it's so complicated, and it's so yeah. difficult, and it's so different for different crops and different parts of the world, and yeah. you know different sizes, and, and it's like you know I eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff, and I'm terrified about <laughs> what I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, no, I think that the thing that a lot of folks like have maybe, I don't want to say don't, don't understand, but have really kind of been lied to about is the fact that agriculture is hard and it's a real job. Um, we kind of have this history in our country of like people with absolutely no farming background uh, because we were busy liquidating native peoples and taking away their land. There's all this free land. So you don't have to know shit to have a farm. And to us, that's normal. Like that's, that's what our culture views as normal is a complete ignoramus can go try and farm and anybody who works in agriculture today knows that's not the case but that's right. such a huge part of our history that non-farmers i think this whole like homesteading self-sufficiency mindset really ties into that because farming is a job like you don't right. go oh yeah i'm an engineer i build bridges for a living like on my own property by myself that makes no sense you know right. like it's it's a larger right. scale endeavor and that's okay we just have this cultural fiction where we don't understand that
1: and, you know, we also, we have a, we have a commercial farm, but, we, you know, we have livestock, and we raise chickens and pigs and grow things, and we fish and we hunt and all that kind of stuff. We do a lot of the self-sufficiency stuff. And it's funny, because yeah. people always think that, that we, we, we must do it for ideological reasons to, like, opt out of the system. <laughs> and it's like, no, we kind of do it because it's interesting, it's challenging, uh, the food is good, um, you know, it's right. like... So it and, and I reckon like occasionally I write about pigs, and one of the first things I say up front, okay, yeah, I raise pigs, but I also recognize that raising three pigs every other year in my backyard is way
0: different from raising pigs for a living. Right. Yeah. And I think like kind of one of the scariest outgrowths of that that culture of homesteading that we kind of came into our nationhood with is when we think traditional, you know, on the land living, we think individual homestead. If you look at the grand scope of human history, like just individual homesteading has almost never happened. And every time it has, it's been a horrible disaster. <laughs> and,
1: because you're so vulnerable.
0: Yeah. And it only happens after like a major depopulation event, like after the Black Death, uh, after the Romans conquered new territory and <laughs> like sold people into slavery. They're like, oh, now there's all this land. We'll give it away to far- to, to war veterans. And so, I'm telling
1: you, interdependence is where it's
0: at. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, like our our idea of what traditional is is number one, individualistic, which is a freak, you know, historically <laughs> speaking. And then number two, uh, traditional here is indigenous people doing like indigenous land management. It's not white people farming corn and, and wheat, you know. And so, yeah. when we have an, an idea of like going back traditional ways, it's like the colonizing way. And really, we should be thinking further back than that. That's Kind of,
1: yeah, and I, I, that's kind of not, I don't know a lot about that, and I do focus on, you know, how ag has changed in the last 100 years. And, right. and I
0: don't, history, the history that goes on before, I mean, I always read your stuff about it, but it's not something that I am well-schooled in, so I, I keep my nose out of it. Right, yeah, and it's, it, you know, the environments are so different across North America. It's a huge place, and there are so many different nations out there, so you can't really make a lot of generalizations about it, but I just really... Mm-hmm. Wish that people, when they're thinking traditional back in the day, would think a little bit further back than like Mm -hmm. when my people arrived. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so if we're talking about going back to tradition, if you if that's your normal, then you're going to think something very different than like, oh, we should all go back to homesteading. Um, Yeah, just like the the whole thing with like homesteading is like kind of like the ideal super moral lifestyle. You're like, that's all stolen land. That's not moral. People who've
1: never done it think that.
0: Yeah. Well. Yeah.
1: So I kept track one year, but uh, one year when we were doing a lot of stuff, we had a, a big garden. We had chickens. I think we had uh, we had chickens for eggs. I think we had turkeys. I believe we did pigs that year. We had we had uh, honey. Um, shot a deer. All kinds of things. Yeah. And I actually added up the approximate calories of what we yielded from each of that yeah. and to figure out what percent. Of my husband's and my caloric needs were met by these endeavors. Yeah, and it was like thirty <laughs> percent. Yeah, and and when people say, "Oh no, we're self-sufficient. We have a we have a a, a really big garden,"
0: I'm
1: mm-hmm. like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> let's do the math on that
0: one." Yeah, yeah, I just yeah, I don't know. it's just there's there's so much to say about like the. Homesteading as a cultural artifact and like a sentimental thing is really so much outweighs its practical value, and it just. That's it. You know. I'm
1: wildly in favor of growing food
0: at home. Yeah. I think it introduces kids to where food comes from.
1: Um, it's a wholesome enterprise. Uh, you 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 learn something. I think it's great. I in fact I'm constantly tweeting about whenever like they have these these uh, uh, like homeowner's things that say you have to have lawns. I'm like, no, support full frontal gardening. Everybody should have a <laughs> garden in their front yard. Yeah. I, I tweet it out all the time when those things come come up in the news. Yeah. I, totally in favor of that. But there's a difference between doing that because, you know, it's an interesting constructive avocation yeah. and thinking that you understand how to feed people.
0: Right, yeah. Well, I mean, like, we have you know, a quarter acre, like just a standard sized home lot. And so we have a garden, like a, a pretty big one. Um, and I'm not under any delusions that we're like homesteading. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just grow some because you like it. It's nice. It kind of makes sense. Right. Um, See, so, you now we have yeah. two acres in woods. And so, we,
1: you know, we can do a fair amount. That, yeah. uh, uh, although we have crap for soil, so we can't grow anything. Cause it's <laughs> man. We can yeah. grow a decent tomato and that's about it. Yeah, and, but but we can have animals, mm-hmm. and uh, and and of course we live on Cape Cod, so we 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 actually fish a lot. We catch a lot of fish. Yeah. Um, and uh, but still, it's a drop in the bucket. Although I will say that we probably meet about oh, probably eighty percent of our protein needs between fishing, hunting, chicken, and,
0: and right. pigs. Right. Yeah.
1: So we do get most of that. But, right. you know,
0: that's all. Yeah. And I think um, so back in the day, there was an incident where I did some field study back in college. And the professor that I was working with was an entomologist. And he actually had just lived in Tahiti. Like, uh, we used to be Mormon. So I was at BYU. And he did his. Oh, Mor- really? Yeah. He did his Mormon mission in Tahiti. And he spent like a quarter of it. So, like, six months on this, like, middle of nowhere boondocks island where everybody was homesteading, I guess, like. Because that's how you could live there. You know, like there were no jobs. Um, I mean, there, there were a few just like running the town council kind of jobs, like municipal jobs. Right, right, right. And that was it. And it was really interesting to kind of having had that really early on experience in life and then comparing how people talk about homesteading. You're like, okay, um, everybody who had a decent house on the island had a municipal job, too. Um, there'd been some hurricane in the last five or 10 years and it's French Polynesia, so rather socialist. So they did get some rebuilds going on, uh, Mm um, like state sponsored rebuilds. Um, everybody did a little bit of farming or gardening. Everybody did a little bit of fishing and, uh, and there was still, I think a lot of welfare going on. Mm-hmm. And and these were folks who knew how to farm. These were folks who right, knew how to right. fish. Like they'd been doing it for thousands of years. They were very very good at it. And you still can't maintain a modern standard of living, like at all. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that was just no. so educational. Well, I
1: think they should put us in charge. <laughs> you no,
0: know, just we just kind of need to talk about that because I think just again because of our. Uh, the way our country was born, we kind of have this impression that homesteading is supposed to work. And you're like, no, it doesn't. Just, just let it go. It's okay. Like, don't feel bad about that. Yeah, like, I think we, we have kind of like a lot of like shame about it in some weird ways that we're not doing it if we're not, because we kind of view that as the natural life. And you're like, no, let it go, man. It doesn't work. It's okay. Yeah, I think I
1: told you somebody was, was uh, oh, God, it was Tim Wise. Do you know Tim Wise? I know it's the name. Yeah. He wrote a book that's kind of silly.
0: Um, he's so you know anything that smacks of industrial agriculture, he hates, and gotcha. he's like, "Yeah, we should send the unemployed to work on labor-intensive farms." Oh yes, that that's way the one. Everyone has food and everyone has a job. That's like, the one,
1: dude. That work sucks. Yeah. And Modern civilization has to work toward getting people out of doing that labor, not into doing that labor. And, you know, he's talking about land redistribution, how well it works, and and he goes on, uh, and he mentions homesteading. I'm like,
0: don't tell Uh, No. Well, and I think the thing that a lot of folks, again, don't understand is that agriculture is skilled labor. Like, it takes about three years for someone to even really get good at just, like, um just grunt hand labor like it's real work so you can't just throw oh, people I at it there's some
1: of the some labor and mm-hmm. you know we have a, we do a lot of different
0: jobs on yeah. our farm and we have
1: uh when we have big jobs we have a a, a brazilian crew that helps us out right and there are a lot of the jobs that we do you can get very good at after only doing them a few times they're right. not difficult right yeah um so, you know, there's other jobs, like, God forbid anyone wants me to learn how to pick strawberries, because <laughs> that would suck. Yeah. But, you know, putting oysters in bags, a lot of that is just fucking grunt work.
0: And right, you yeah. you get
1: better at it, you get faster at it, and we realize that, like, when we have, like, sometimes they, these students from Tufts come down and, and do a little internship on the farm, and I watch somebody who's never done something try and do it, yeah. and I take granted the fact that I've done it many times, i <laughs> better at it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, but yeah, yeah, no, it's, people just have no idea about what a farm is.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think those, those crews are folks who have been doing a lot of manual labor, so that kind of accelerates their, their curve, and like, you know, I've done some jobs where you start out, and it's, it's long, and then within a week or so, you're doing it pretty quickly. Um, Right. Yeah, there are some jobs like that, but there are, like... In the grand scheme of things on a farm, there aren't that many, <laughs> you know, a lot of things take. And that's just the grunt labor. There's also things like, okay, when do we plant? Like, when do we harvest? Who's in charge of knowing that? And
1: also, that? okay, who's, who's going to fix the planter? And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's machines that you have to keep running. Yes. And, and it's like, I mean, so much of our farm, I'm watching my husband as we speak, go back and forth between the garage and the boat. He's getting our fishing boat uh up and running today and i have no hope of doing this work but luckily <laughs> yeah. he has skills that
0: i don't right well and that's the thing that kind of like drives me a little bit nuts about when people talk about automation they talk about automation like okay now we need fewer people now we're less reliant on labor and i'm like uh-uh that's not how this works what happens when you automate is your machines get more and more complex which means you need a mechanic who's more and more skilled so that means your labor, like, your dependence on labor is getting much greater because now you have a much smaller pool of people with those skills to draw from, and you have to keep them very happy or they'll leave because they're very employable. <laughs>
1: right, but certainly in the sense that you're paying less for labor. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, because you don't have people picking the fields. Right, right. But you're right, there, there is still that kind of dependence, although a lot of the farmers I know are pretty damn good with their trackers.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, that's that's Perfect. one class. of... Deer,
1: John, Deere makes it really hard. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's a whole different conversation.
0: Yeah, I'm really thinking more like in manufacturing and kind of like the food processing side of things. Like you definitely see oh, that yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So like, yeah, no, that's
1: totally different.
0: Yeah, so we talk but about. Go ahead.
1: The combine is an amazing piece of machinery. Right. It's just, I mean, the first time I rode
0: one, I was like, holy, <laughs> f- right? It's I do feel powerful.
1: I, I look at what it does, you know, okay, it starts with a plant, it separates the corn from the plant, it separates the kernels from the corn, mm-hmm. it puts the corn in a bin, it gets the chaff out of it first, it mm-hmm. cuts up the stalks, and it spreads them evenly on the field.
0: Right. Which is, that's, that? a lot of, that's a lot of steps to happen in, like, one moving piece of equipment. And
1: so, like... Oysters are so not mechanized and the, the big company that we work for just got just got one of the very first early sorting machines. <laughs> and ideally what you want is you dump your oysters in one end and they come out cleaned and sorted on the other end. Mm-hmm. But we're not at that stage. First they go through one machine and they get cleaned. Yeah. And then uh then People have to pick out the dead ones because the machine does not have the capability to do that. Right. And take the live ones and put them, you know, the conveyor belt comes and there's a little space, like, for, for each oyster. You have to put each oyster in its space, <laughs> face down, and then it sorts it. Right. And so, and it feels like a huge improvement, but compared to a combine, it's like stone
0: Right. Yeah. So I have I have so many questions that I want to ask All right, you. Should oh. we start our like, <laughs> actual conversation? We should talk about oysters. Um, yeah, we should. So, so tell us more about what you do, what the oyster growing process is like, how that fits into like your overall operation and everything.
1: So oysters, um, the, the speed with which you can take an oyster from a pinhead to a market size oyster depends on where you are. It depends on your condition. Mm-hmm. And where we are, uh where we have moderately cold water, um, and we have uh we farm in a place that has a really big tide, so we get a big influx of nutrients twice mm-hmm. a day. Mm-hmm. Where we are, it takes a little over a year to two growing seasons season to get oysters to market. So what that means is we get oysters in June of year one, and then we'll start selling them in probably July of year two mm-hmm. through December of year two, and hopefully by December they've all the ones that are going to reach market size get to be
0: market size. they are
1: always some laggards.
0: Yeah. So when so, you say when you say you get oysters, do you get them like from a nursery, basically, like?
1: Yeah, we get them. Well, we actually, so it's always complicated, isn't it? <laughs> so our oysters come from a hatchery mm-hmm. in Maine. Okay. And a guy named Bill Mook up there is in the business of breeding oysters. And he breeds for uh, uh, uniform shape. He breeds for disease hardiness. He breeds for cold hardiness. He breeds for how fast they uh, they grow, and he also grows the oysters out, so he has experience on that side of business as well. And so he literally breeds oysters in a facility where he's got them there in the winter, and what, what he has to do is, in the winter, when oysters are usually dormant because of the temperature, mm-hmm. he creates an artificial summer because it's temperature that makes oysters spawn. Mm-hmm. And so in the middle of, you know, the main winter he's got oysters believing that it's summer mm-hmm. and he literally puts the males and the females in the same tank mm-hmm. and they spawn and the sperm and the eggs find each other and they turn into a larva right so so it, it's a larva for about oh 14 days or so and then it it turns into a tiny little readily identifiable bivalve in fact under the microscope it looks like a More like a clam than an oyster. It's a little oyster. It looks just like a shellfish. It's a little tiny shellfish. Now, have you ever wondered why (laughs) in the wild oysters are all clustered together, but when you get oysters in a restaurant, they're beautiful and pristine and they don't look like they've been broken off a cluster?
0: Tell us why.
1: (laughs) So, here's how they do it. It's one of the most interesting things in oyster farming, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. So, at that 14 day stage, what oysters do is they create a foot. They grow a foot, the way a clam has a foot. Yeah. And that foot, unlike with the clam, they use it to cement themselves to the surface that they will spend the rest of their life on. Okay. The oysters never move. Mm-hmm. Once they're once they're down on that rock or on that you know <laughs> deck, uh, under that dock piling or whatever it is, they never move. Yeah. And so. All right, so what do you do about that? So what they do is, at the phase where that little sh- shellfish is going to cement itself, they put them in a big tank with ground-up oyster shell. Uh-huh. And each of those little guys finds itself a granule of oyster shell and cements itself to that granule. And, of course, that granule then just basically gets absorbed by the shell. And, yeah. so, and then by then, the oyster can't cement to anything else because it only gets to do it once. And so you have oysters then that do not cluster, and you can grow them for for the half-shell market that way. Uh So, now, when those oysters become, oh, the the smallest you can buy, really, I think is one to two millimeters, very small. Mm -hmm. And we have bought them that small, but we found out that it makes more sense for us to buy them. uh, They go through one more step before we buy them. So we work with a much larger company, Kit Cut Oyster. And Cape Cod Oyster has facilities that we don't have, including an upweller. Now, an upweller is something that you put on, uh, it's like a big tank or a series of tanks that you put out on a dock in the water. Mm -hmm. And you put your seed in the upweller, and it pumps water through. And two things happen when you do that. First, you get a lot of nutrients coming through to these little tiny oysters and they grow quickly but the other thing you do is it the water that's pumping around moves the oysters around they get tumbled against each other which helps them grow uniformly because if they're all in a clump the ones on the outside do well the ones on the inside don't they might grow into funny shapes depending on what space is available to them Mm -hmm. so the little tiny one to two millimeter oysters go in the upweller to become 10-millimeter oysters. Mm-hmm. And when they're about that size, about the size of thumbnail, that's when we buy
0: them. Aha. So you get the big oyster seeds.
1: We get the bigger oyster seed.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: we do. So, nice. And then, from then on, it's our job.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So what do you do with them once you get these thumbnail-sized oysters?
1: So... We get the thumbnail size oysters. They come in uh, in these big, these plastic boxes that are, that are used ubiquitously in uh, in fishing and, and aquaculture. It's called fish totes. They're mm-hmm. probably about three feet long and 18 inches wide, 18 inches deep, yeah. and they'll fit about a hundred thousand oysters in a fish tote. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, not probably about 50,000. And yeah. it so we get these big totes, and what we have to do is try and figure out how many we we want to put about 500 oysters per bag the bag is what goes out on the farm and it's a it's a it's a stiff mesh bag Mm -hmm. um about oh three feet by 18 inches and it it gets attached to the trays that we have out on our farm that hold the more mature oysters Mm -hmm. and so we figure out okay what's 500 oysters We start an assembly line. We have a container that holds pretty much that amount of oysters. We fill 500 bags. We close the bags um, with a a PVC slide that holds the two sides of the bags together. Mm -hmm. And once we have them all filled, then we have to get them out to the farm. Mm -hmm. And it's a logistics nightmare because you're (laughs) trying to get – 500 bags. And this is what farming is. Mm -hmm. It's one logistics nightmare after another. It really is. (laughs) So you're trying to get 500 oysters out in a boat that holds no more than 200, fighting a tide that won't let you get close enough to your farm to do it, except at, you know, a small window as the water's coming out and a small window as the water's coming back. Right. And then you put your boat in at one landing that has a dock, but you can't pick oysters up at that landing because there's no way to get a truck down to the water. So there's another <laughs> landing where you can get a truck down to the water. So you have this crazy system where, okay, one team—and this is why we need a, a help for a couple of jobs during the year. Right. One team takes load one of the oysters to the in the boat to the dock to take them out to the farm. You take them out to the farm and then that team comes back and meets the second team at the landing with the next load and usually it's like a two-day trip because you only have, you know, and, and of course if there's bad weather or the tide is in the middle of the night, yeah. you can't do it. And um, so so that's one of the big jobs of the year is getting the seed out. And once the seed is out, um, it's pretty much self-sufficient yeah. until... The end of the year when we, then we, we take it in and sometimes it clumps up in the corners and we have to go through and knock them out of the corners mm-hmm. and sometimes we'll decide to move the seeds from the bags that they're in to bags when they're bigger oysters they can go in bags that have bigger holes yeah and a bigger mesh because you want to you want to have the maximum water flowing around so sometimes we'll do that but they're pretty good until then and then yeah. the next big job comes We're just taking them all in for the winter.
0: Right, yeah, and you tweeted about this, you know, what, two months back. Oh my God,
1: it's brutal work and you're doing it usually when it's just cold and windy and nasty and dangerous. But we can't leave equipment and oysters out for the winter because uh, it's an intertidal harbor and ice can just shear away everything right you have out
0: there right so the oysters themselves would be okay with the winter it's the equipment that's going to get destroyed by the ice
1: the, the oysters would be okay if they stayed under the water they yeah. would be mostly okay, okay. um it's pot, you can kill them if they if in an intertidal area because if they do freeze hard and then they get jostled around by uh, by wind or wave they they will die but it takes a lot, An oyster can, can take a lot of, of abuse out there, but but we have to bring everything in. And so we we load the bags back in the boat, we do the, the logistics nightmare in reverse, <laughs> and, and then we take them all to Cape Cod Oysters plant, and we transfer them all into onion bags. Mm-hmm. We don't leave them in the stiff grow-out bags. We put them in onion bags, we palletize them, yeah. and then they go in a cooler for the winter.
0: Right. And
1: then next
0: big job is when you come back right spring right well and to to clarify something for folks who don't I guess grow a lot of oysters um so so oysters if I understand correctly you know they want to be submerged most of the time but if they are above the tide line and the tide goes down and they're high and dry for a few hours they're okay right so you have perfectly fine and in fact most places that grow for
1: the half shell I'm not gonna say most certainly a lot of places that grow for the half shell market, uh, grow in intertidal areas. There are right. some real advantages to that. One being that you can go
0: out on land and, and you can work with the oysters when the water's out right. twice a day. Yeah. Um
1: but another one is that when oysters are out of the water, the equipment is also out of the water, and the sun gets a chance to kill, you know, biofowl. You get algae, yeah. you get seaweed, you get all kinds of things growing on the equipment, mm-hmm. and that impedes the water flow. And so when they're out of the water for a while, uh, the sun tends to, to kill that stuff. And, it, and it's interesting because where, where we farmed, one side of our farm is lower than the other side. So the high mm-hmm. side is out of the water longer. And we see that the low side has more biofouling than the high side. The longer mm-hmm. it's out of the water, the less biofouling you get. Yeah. But also the longer the longer it's out of the water, the slower the oysters grow because they only, of course, grow when they're in the water doing right. their bivalve thing.
0: Yeah. So it's almost like backwards rice. So, like, the reason they grow rice <laughs> in patties where it's submerged a lot of the time is like rice doesn't actually like that much, but the weeds hate it worse, and so it kills the weeds, and it slows the rice down a little bit. So this kind of sounds like it's backwards rice.
1: Yeah, that, that, <laughs> it's an interesting comparison, yeah, because there's, there is this trade-off. Because if we could grow oysters quickly with equipment that came out of the water enough so we never had to deal with biofowl, that would be awesome. Yeah. But it's always a trade-off. Gotcha. The farming is always a trade
0: off. Yes. Yeah. Like that's, that's always the thing is, and if you were to move like 20 miles north or south, that trade off might, you know, look very different too. So it's very location dependent.
1: Yes. Yes. So
0: that's so crazy. Yes, yeah.
1: And everybody's got different conditions. And we talk to people who grow oysters down in the Chesapeake and they have a completely different protocol. And the guys who are up in Nova Scotia, they do things completely differently too. Yeah. We have one very specific way of doing it. Not just on Cape Cod, but in our harbor. And most people do some sort of variation of what we do. And the way we learned to do it is we went out there as total novices. We said, hmm, who's the best guy out here? And (laughs) and he was easy to spot, and so we just did what he did.
0: (laughs) Right. That's how a lot of farm learning happens. It's just, it's very peer-to-peer. Yeah. So I have a question for you that maybe a lot of people have, which is like, if you want to start oyster farming, like how do you, it's not like land where you're just like, Hey, call a real estate agent and you get that plot. There's like complex, like rental and permitting systems going on with coastal. Like tell us a little bit about that. So it varies tremendously place to place, but the hard part of oyster farming is finding a place where it's appropriate to grow oysters and that you can get a lease. Yes. Um, and in places like Cape Cod, it's complicated by the fact that, you know, this is a tourist
1: destination, we mm-hmm. have wealthy landowners mm-hmm. uh, as our upland neighbors, mm-hmm. people are um, profoundly ambivalent about oyster farming, most people think it's great because they, you know, that it can remove nutrients, but it's also unsightly, it impedes navigation um, and you know, if you have a, a house with an oyster farm in front of it, you know, at six in the morning, you could have Shaboni oystermen like me and my husband out there and <laughs> have a boat. You yeah. know, working.
0: Yeah. And God forbid. You
1: know, I can understand why you don't want that. And we have a house <laughs> on the water too. We live yeah. on a, a lake, and and you know, you can't grow oysters here. But if you could, mm-hmm. I. I would balk at having somebody else's arm right outside my front door like that. I totally get that. And so it's a difficult dance and it's it, and it's a different dance in different places. In more remote places, um, it's it's a little bit easier, but there's still you know all kinds of controversy because I mean think about it. you're allocating a public resource for private use. Mm-hmm and you don't do that without careful consideration and probably lots of competing interests having something to say about it. Yep. Um, and you know recently because here in Cape Cod certainly and in in lots of coastal areas there's a problem with nutrient pollution. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's
0: runoff from agriculture here, it's mostly from septic systems because we don't have sewerage in most of of, of the caves. Delicious.
1: And so oysters are actually an inexpensive alternative compared to sewers, if mm-hmm. we're going to clean up our estuaries, mm-hmm. and so the the attitude has changed a little
0: bit lately. That's great. Well, yeah, there's it's something I've seen is that um, rural and exurban landowners like really love being on septic's because they're like, if sewers get built, then more people will live here. And the whole idea of moving out to the sticks is you get a nice place and then you slam the door behind you. Um, right. So, like, having only septics is a really good slam-the-door-behind-you move, and so they will fight tooth and nail to keep any actual sewerage from being built. So, I actually yeah. think
1: the problem here is a little bit different. It's yeah. that it, we have so many houses here, um, and sewering would be so expensive.
0: Yeah, and the cost is obviously another big part of it. They don't want that either. Um, no, they do
1: not want that. And I, I, yeah. I totally get that
0: yep yeah, so I mean that's that's the real challenge with, um, with aquaculture in general, if you're doing it like right on shore is that there are so many competing land uses like um, even when it's what you guys are doing, which is shellfish, which takes <coughs> excuse me, which takes nutrients out of the water, it's not like fish farming where you're dumping poop into the water. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you still have, you know you need to, to not take up the entire area so boats can get in and out. You've got people who are like, In terms of things that are unsightly, I don't think, like, networks of buoys across the water are the worst thing ever, but people still don't like it. And, uh, yeah, and then, like, the noise of people working in it. There's just so many, there's so much competition for coastal land use and for coastal Mm -hmm. waters use. And something I'm seeing people, like, all these people talking about seasteading, I'm like, if you could figure out how to actually grow productively offshore, um, that would be amazing, but engineering wise it's very difficult because the waves and everything destroy everything. <laughs> very difficult. It's expensive, it's difficult,
1: it's dangerous.
0: Yeah. Um, and it's I, I certainly wouldn't
1: want to try it. Although there are people who are working on these systems for Finfish and mm-hmm. you know, I, I hope they succeed. Yeah. Um and you know, we'll probably figure it out. But uh, but right now it's it's not a business I would want to be in.
0: Right, yeah, and there's Again, at the same time, you see so many people with, like, all this interest in seasteading, and I think it's, like, mostly libertarian jabronis who just don't want to pay taxes, and they think if they squat (laughs) offshore, that's going to fix it, but they're not thinking, like, how do I continue to provide a living for myself and do something productive while I'm out here? It's strictly tax evasion.
1: that because I mean it could be people who have tried or wanted to do things inshore but yeah. find the politics and the permitting to be prohibitive. No like, yeah. okay, well now what can I do?
0: Yeah, well the the uh, folks the folks calling it seasteading are definitely just tax evasion. The the people trying to oh, yeah, learn how to yeah. do the people trying That's, to learn yeah, the people trying to learn aquaculture, like they're they're legit. But anyway, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Was I? I don't know. We were talking about offshore engineering or something. Oh, yeah. But,
1: no, I don't have much to say about that. Cause, and, again, you know, what's interesting, one of the things that's interesting about farming is that by farming you don't become an expert in the thing that in your farming area of expertise or your farming thing you farm. You only become an expert at the little tiny segment that you do.
0: And, exactly. Like,
1: I know people on Cape Cod who are, who are bona fide experts. Yeah, Um, But most of the people who farm, you know, it's like when you have an illness Mm -hmm. and and some kind of chronic illness and you have the luxury of super specialization. You get to know everything about this illness that you have. Um, And even though, you know, the doctor has all the degrees and things, Mm -hmm. um, they have to be generalists. And so, you know, and... And it, it's like that. We get to be specialists. We yeah. get to understand how to grow oysters in a particular quantity with our particular labor force in our particular place.
0: Yeah. And how to be profitable doing it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that, again, when we talk about, um, like, in pop culture, when we talk about farmers, there's very much this, like, oh, farmers really know because they're doing it all the time. And you're like, they know what they're doing very, right. very, very well. They know their routine. They know their equipment incredibly well. Um Trying to extrapolate that out into like general markets and just like general technical for other locations, like they really don't. Like <laughs> very
1: hard. Yeah.
0: And it's yeah.
1: most things so many things aren't generalizable. Yeah. And, you know, this is one of the things that, that happens with agriculture that that it's really, really useful if people have experience that you can build on. And one mm-hmm. of the reasons we ended up with standardized crops like corn and soy yeah. and and wheat and cotton is because um, those were the crops that there was the most demand for mm-hmm. those were the things people got really good at growing mm-hmm. those were the things that the land grant universities put resources into improving the seed of and if you're a farmer going in you're kind of nuts not to grow that stuff exactly. because it lowers risk there are markets for it and of course you know there's there's title one
0: commodity support for it mm-hmm. although there's title one commodity support for all kinds of things that don't get grown very much also Great. but um, so yeah I mean
1: this. Farming is about risk reduction,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and one of the ways you do that is to do the things
0: that other people are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's I don't, I don't say like oh they don't know everything as if like that's some kind of slur. Like nobody. No, knows. no, I, yeah. I, I totally understand what you mean. <laughs> right? I yeah, totally
1: understand. They're
0: the ultimate specialist. Yeah, like nobody knows everything. Like that's that's life, and that's okay. We just need to acknowledge that like nobody knows everything, um, and like they're. Except, uh, obviously yeah that's why we have a podcast um (laughs) no like you know i don't that's that was a big challenge with like starting to audit farms was especially at first you don't really know what you're looking at so you're just like Mm -hmm. okay we're gonna do our best here um and it was funny because farmers hated that so much because they're very expert at their particular thing um right but were they gonna pay enough money to have someone who knows their exact thing come out to make a special trip just for them no (laughs) right right right. so this is what we get yeah so this is what we get um so, yeah, like, that's that's the nature of things is, like, I think in agriculture, because everyone is such a specialist in their particular thing, having that specialist knowledge is, like, um, it's really, like, the only thing. And that's what's really held up as this is what makes you good. This is what makes you smart. And if you don't know something for that particular absolute niche, it's like, you're a fucking idiot. And and there's, like, they'll constantly talk shit each other and like that's fine like you know like slap on the butt locker room thing that's fine but it gets really really vicious um to the point where people don't ask questions and they just kind of like quietly watch each other over shoulders and Mm -hmm. you know it's kind of like a bunch of kids almost like cheating off each other's tests kind of thing and everybody's real (laughs) furtive about it and we don't have a lot of actual talking through things and dialogue and like, admitting that it's okay not to know things, and... And we, like, in, where we
1: are, it's a very, very insular community. You know, mm-hmm. there's a handful of people who were farming oysters in Barstow Harbor when, when we got here, yeah. and we just got off the boat from Manhattan for crying out loud. <laughs> and they're yeah. looking at us like, who are these people? Yeah. And and I totally got that. And, mm-hmm. and but, you know, they, they saw that we worked really hard and they mm-hmm. saw that we were trying to do things right and yes. they saw that that we were nice. There was there was one day where um, so to get to our farm you have to go like so as the water goes out, you know, and leaves the farm dry, mm-hmm. there's there's a river that stays wet that goes in between like these two big patches of, of farms.
0: Right.
1: And if you're working with a pump you keep your boat in the river and you keep your intake in the water and then you run a long hose onto the farm yeah. and uh, and there was a, a, a guy was working with the pump and he was out in the boat he was you know in the water by the boat wearing waders yeah and we didn't realize that and we came by you know pretty quick mm-hmm. and our wake almost swept the just guy.
0: splash him oh
1: and and we were like, "Oh!" Shit. And my husband went <laughs> over there to apologize, and he says, "You know, I just want you to understand, I'm an idiot, not an all. <laughs> oh. You know, <laughs> he didn't do it on purpose." Right. And he totally he he understood that, and, and and people when they saw that we were trying to do things right, they 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 you know were were much warmer and and welcoming to us, and and I got nothing but good things to say about my neighbors out there who have helped us and who will answer questions and, um, and and you know, people working together to try and figure out what the best way to do things is. Right. It took a while.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean that's They've seen enough people come in with, like, uh, you know, get a McMansion in a fancy house and just kind of, like, yell about stuff. Like, they've seen that happen enough times that obviously you're going to have your guard up, but then you're like, oh, (laughs) you're actually working for a living. Like, that sets people apart sometimes pretty quickly if they move to a rural area. I think it does.
1: And also, giving people oysters tends to win them over.
0: It does do that. It does do that. Amazing.
1: People like it. I've never understood why people would want to be a dentist, because, like, nobody wants to to
0: you, but if you're an oyster farmer, <laughs> it's like everybody wants to be your friend. Like, hey! Yeah, I used to work in the blueberry breeding program at University of Florida, and so, like, every spring we had to go pick our blueberry bushes clean, like the research bushes. Um, and everybody wanted to be your friend. Yes, and they were really good because, like, they really spoiled those bushes, and it was funny because mm-hmm. people would always be like, these are amazing! Are they organic? And you're like, no, they're like, university research test plot blueberries. <laughs> I don't know what's in these. That was good times. They were like uh, injecting sulfuric acid into their irrigation water because they like, blueberries like it a little bit acidic, but we're on a sandbar, so all the dirt is coral. So we had to throw a lot of acid in there to keep their roots right. And people are like, is it organic? Uh-uh. They have a sulfuric.
1: Did you mention
0: the sulfuric acid at that point? Yeah. No, we put sulfuric acid in the water. like, no, they're on a sulfuric acid IV. They are <laughs> super not organic. Not organic. Ah, good times Yeah, so it, it really does help It's good Although people are definitely happy to see you with them At the beginning of blueberry season Because by the end, everybody's right. had way too many
1: <laughs> Yep, no, I, I, I get that And, you know, we, my husband and I We eat a lot of oysters But we eat most of them in the time of the year When they're the best yeah. In the fall, they're really good And I will say that Barnsville Harbor And people will back me up on this I mm. can't take credit for it Because it's just in the water Yep. But we grow world-class oysters, mm. and if you come to Cape Cod in in November and get oysters out of Barnstable Harbor, they could be, like, the best on the planet. They're mm. really, really good.
0: Fascinating. Wow,
1: oh. <laughs> lucky us.
0: Yeah, so I'll be making a trip up now.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Other than the oysters, November's not the best time
0: to visit. Right, yeah. We've been down in the swamp so long that I would go out to California pretty frequently for work, and you just start to feel like a cotton ball. You're like, I'm drying out. This isn't right. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That's right.
1: You're down there in the, in the humidity.
0: Yeah. You're like, oh, my gills, they're dried out. This isn't right. <laughs> 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 it's good times. Um, man, I have I have just I had so many questions. Um, I'm trying to think of what they were.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll see if I have any answers. But
0: goodness, um, I feel like for this podcast, we just need to have some pictures because I feel like you know, for for most on land farms, we have a fairly good mental image. There's green stuff coming out of the dirt, oh, and, there's, and yeah. there's a tractor. Um, but for oyster so farms, what does it look like? right? Yeah, what does it look like? So here's what it looks like. <laughs> we. Farm only on about an acre, yeah. so it's very small. Yeah, and what you see on our acre is rows of
1: wire that are about four feet by three feet, mm-hmm. and they're held off the seafloor by uh, wire mesh legs. Yeah, um, because the whole point of this is you want to keep the oysters suspended in the water.
0: Yeah, you don't want them stuck in mud. Don't, right, and you, and you want them to to
1: get as much nutrient as possible because that's what makes them grow. So you want you know water on both sides, not just the top side of them. Mm-hmm. So although there are places where bottom planting, which is putting things on the bottom, is perfectly appropriate mm-hmm. for the the, the goal, but so what you see on our farm is four rows of trays uh, that are. Uh, each row of trays has uh, has two rows of trays, so um, you know they're they're almost back to back. Although you can walk in between them, yeah. so the long rows have ninety trays. So it's one hundred and eighty trays, basically abutting. They're not abutting. There's like a foot in between them, mm-hmm. and then you have a wide aisle wide enough to get the boat down, and then you have another row of 90 and eighty, mm-hmm. ninety and ninety, a mm-hmm. foot apart, and so basically it's a really boring looking thing because you see just rows of trays.
0: Right. And
1: the trays themselves hold the oysters that are going to be sold this year. So Mm -hmm. right now they have last year's seed that we, that lived in the cooler over the winter. Yeah. And on top of those, we put this year's seed. Mm -hmm. So, that each tray can hold two of those stiff grow-out bags, and then we, they, we hook them onto the trays with stainless steel clips. Ooh. And each of the bags has floats in it. So mm-hmm. it's got four floats. And so when the water goes out or the water comes in, uh, the, the bags are held above the tray level by about six inches and they Mm -hmm. also move around because so the floats mean they're not just sitting there dead on top of the tray Mm -hmm. and a couple of things happen when you do that first is that um you know you get you just get more water flow but second is that again you're moving the oysters around and and moving the oysters around is always a good thing because um you get more uniform oysters that way and you get faster growth that way when Mm -hmm. they're not just in a heap. And so, so when the water comes in and the water goes out, those trays float above, but then at... When they're obviously when the water's dry, they sit they right on top of the tray. and sometimes, like, we'll lose a clip. Either one of the, the clips will break off or it'll rust through the thing on the tray that it's clipped to. Mm-hmm. And so, we go out and see the, the bags where one end is sticking up, and we put a new clip on that or, or we reattach that. And every year, we use we lose a couple of bags because they'll come unclipped and and they'll float away to Portugal,
0: right? And then you're like, um, Oh no, more oysters in the wild, what will we do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah except they can't get out of the
1: bag. So usually they get picked up and we our most of our equipment is labeled with our our, our name and everything. But yeah. uh, it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. So um so that's what it looks like. And the thing that I think people have a hard time getting their mind around is how closely we work with mm-hmm. the rhythm of the tide. Right. So we have to figure out when to go out there mm-hmm. because depending on where we want the boat to be. Mm-hmm. So our, our, our land slopes up. And so the later we wait, yeah. the farther away from the farm we're going to be. Mm-hmm. So if we want to get the boat to, like, the east side of the farm, then we have to go at one time. But if we want to get it to the west side, which is the high side, we have to leave much earlier. Right. And the tide is different every day. It's a yeah. different depth. Every day it varies quite a bit. Yeah, well, and it, it, also, yeah. it also can vary by, like, pressure and things.
0: Right. Well, tides are on a twenty-five hour cycle, I think, and so it's just a little bit off from the daily cycle. So the tide is always moving around, and you're like, ugh.
1: <laughs> right, and exactly. we, you know, we both have tide charts on our phones, and so the tide is, is always about forty five
0: minutes later than it was the
1: day before. Right. Yeah.
0: And uh, and and yeah, so we're always trying to figure out
1: exactly when to put in the boat so that we get to the to the farm at the right time because. If you're too late and you have equipment that you're putting out, it means you have to walk the equipment over to the farm. And if you're too early, it means you have to wait for the water to go out if you're doing a
0: job that that you need the water to be out for. Awesome. So, <laughs>
1: and everything, every little thing is just an engineering challenge. Mm-hmm. Okay, how do you attach these grow bags eggs to, to these trays? Mm-hmm. Um. You know, okay, well, we can do it with clips, and we we can do it with zip ties, and you know, we did it that way at, at some point. But the clip those other things, and then how do you attach the clip to the bag, and how do you prevent the where it's it's hooked onto the tray from rusting through, and how many years can you get out of your trays, and right. you know, everything is just it's figuring out how to. Do a job optimally or how to design equipment optimally. It yeah. very little has to do with actual oysters.
0: Right. Yeah. It's I think that's kind of one of the weirdest paradoxes about farming something is you spend most of your time fiddling around with not the thing, but like <laughs> the like the infrastructure of the farm.
1: Right, right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and it's I don't think it's what people's idea of farming usually is. But yeah. that's in my experience,
0: that's right. not Yeah, I feel no. like um, there are so many pictures of, you know, about farming that are like basically someone with their hands in the dirt. And you're like, how often does that, that's not what you're spending most of your time doing. <laughs>
1: well, it's funny because I asked some farmers, like, who yeah. do crop farming, mm-hmm. you know, how often do you do, like, manual labor? And mm-hmm. the answer for them is not very often. Mm-hmm.
0: But the answer for us is all the time. Yeah, because well, what um, you're doing is barely automated at all still.
1: It is. Barely automated at all. And farming oysters is like farming rocks.
0: Mm-hmm. You just have to
1: move <laughs> heavy things from place to place and with very little help. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, and sometimes we roll our eyes. Because, you know, we're in our 50s and we're like, how much longer can we keep doing this? Right. And it won't be that much longer. But one of the reasons we got into it, actually, is because of the physical challenge. Because right. we thought at our age that was a good thing to, to
0: tackle. Right, stay nimble. you um like um, if the day you like hit the slippery rocks and can't stay upright anymore. You're like, okay, now it's time to retire. I know. <laughs> I know. Oh my goodness! I know. Yeah,
1: and, you know for, we've never had any really serious injury out there, but it can happen, and, and mm-hmm. you know people do die out there, and yeah. uh, we are
0: we're super careful, and uh, and you know we just well. Beyond being careful, all you can do is sort of muddle through. Yep. Yep. That's the way of things. Um, question for you. So, um, out in out of the world of shellfish that you can farm, so oysters are one. There's also, there's scallops and there's mollusks, or excuse me, muzzles. Mussels, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Clams, too. Yeah, and clams, that's right. Oh, I always forget clams. It's really bad. Uh, <laughs> we actually
1: do have some clams. We've grown clams. Um,
0: yeah. How do they, and they it's totally different. Yeah. So clams, um, where we
1: grow, it used to be all clams. Yeah. And then uh, disease wiped mm. them out. Yeah. And but there's still some clams out there. And when we bought, we bought the the farm of somebody who got out of the business. Mm-hmm. And there were clams planted on some of it. So we have some hard shell clams, cohox, but we also have uh, steamers, soft shell clams. Mm-hmm. And those are delicious, and they don't travel well. So, you know, most places in the country, you don't often see steamers. Sure. Um, but And they're totally different, because steamers, you don't seed. Mm-hmm. It's a wild set. Hmm. And so what you do is you put out nets to, to catch the, the, the set, the oh. little baby clams, mm-hmm. and then to protect them. Mm-hmm. And then after a couple of years, uh, you take the... The net off and and you use a pump and you mm-hmm. you pump up the steamers and pumping up steamers is really fun because you pump and they float up and you grab them and and, hmm. um, and and we haven't gotten serious about that part of the business because we know nothing about it really right. but we we have we've done a little bit of steamers and I think we're gonna do a little bit more this year I think we have a we have a pretty good set in parts of the part of the farm so we'll see how it comes out
0: yeah. but
1: stock shell clams are delicious.
0: Yeah, well, they, down in Florida where we lived, um, kind of down by Tampa, they have a big clam growing area by Cedar Key. And uh, something we found out, so obviously, like, your shellfish, they feed off of nutrients in the water. Like, that, that feeds algae and they eat the algae. Um, so you have to hit a balance between clean water that's not going to get people sick when they eat those clams or oysters, and then also, like, have enough nutrients to grow something. So they have certain... Yeah, they have certain allotments where it's legal, like the water's clean enough. And then there are all these, like, illegal squatters growing your sewage outlets because the clams would get so fat. Um. <laughs>
1: right, but, it, but the things yeah. that make the clams fat mm-hmm. are not the things that will do you harm. The right. things that make the clams fat
0: like are like diatoms the
1: that grow off the nutrients. Yeah. Like, like the, the bacteria from the sewage, the mm-hmm the things that can hurt you mm-hmm. are not the things that the oysters eat, but there are the things that they ingest when they eat other things.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So you get, and so yeah. you, you get to you can the, do that. Mm-hmm. And, and
1: if you put oysters someplace like outside of sewage treatment plant,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you can absolutely grow oysters there, but then you have to relay them to a place mm-hmm. where uh, they can, they can, sort of, they can purge themselves of all that stuff. So you you grow them in that place and then you relay them to another place where they clean out and after a certain period of time, then they're safe to eat. But one of the problems is people poach them and Mm -hmm. it's a public health risk.
0: Yeah, well my understanding was these guys were like basically squatters, like this, it was not legal to grow clams there, so their business (laughs) model was not entirely above board, so they were all about like, just just turn these clams around. And uh... (laughs) Yeah. So they yeah, they call them... So yeah. It's not as
1: bad with things that you that you cook. Yeah. But it, it's very bad for things you eat raw.
0: Yeah, well and they called them the clam pirates and I Googled it one day and I regretted it. No, oh, that's so um, funny. Yeah. <laughs> <All> <laughs> good right.
1: Yeah, there are all kinds of colorful stories about shell fishermen.
0: Yeah, I can see that. Oh man. Um Muzzles. So my understanding is they grow out kind of like in further offshore waters, or did is that uh, I it know.
1: depends. Um you don't you probably don't want an intertidal area mm-hmm. um, for muscles and I don't grow them but I've certainly seen them grown and yeah. what a lot of people do is they hang ropes that have muscle stat on them yeah. um from the undersides of of rafts and things. Mm-hmm. So they float the gear floats on the surface and
0: the mussels hang down below mm-hmm. and uh, and that's how I've seen them grown, although I'm sure there are lots of ways to grow them. But I think that's how most of it most of it happens. And yeah, that's, that's very different also. Right. And then scallops are weird because they don't actually like grab onto something. They actually move around. So farming. Right. Them they is... move
1: around. So you have to grow <laughs> them in, in the, the ones I've seen are these lantern, they call them lantern bags. Yeah. And uh, so you have this, this bag. It looks like, you know, those pop-up laundry hampers. Yep. It looks like a pop-up laundry hamper, except it's narrower and taller.
0: Yeah. And, and you run a long line. Um, and then you clip these things, you attach them somehow to this line and the scallops are in these lantern bags at like different, at different levels. But again, this is something I don't do. So yeah. my expertise is, is,
1: nil, but that's how I've seen it, how I've seen it done.
0: Right. Amazing. Yeah. So that's, that's shellfish farming in a, in a nutshell. That's
1: shellfish farming in a <laughs> nutshell. In a, a oyster shell.
0: Yeah. Does anybody grow seaweed out in your area?
1: Uh, people are looking at it um, it's you know uh, uh, Brent Smith who runs um, oh, the names escaping me the uh, symbol Island off the coast of Connecticut uh, Green, Wave, Green Wave. yeah he he has pioneered some aquaculture that incorporates both shellfish and seaweed and mm-hmm. he does really interesting stuff and he's a great guy too yeah and uh, but there is not right now I think uh, a lot of seaweed. I don't know of any but there probably is some. But I definitely know of farmers who are looking at it. One of the great things about seaweed Mm -hmm. is that it's counter cyclical to oysters. Yeah. So it grows in the winter. Yeah. Which has a couple of advantages. Mm -hmm. One of which is that the people who own vacation homes here, summer homes uh, aren't here in the winter, and so you don't have as many competing interests going on.
0: <laughs> yeah, but their septic systems are still leaking all the stuff they pooped out all summer. So
1: that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Although the, the, some of the, the we have pretty tight
0: septic regulations here on Cape Cod, but still nutrients leak out. No way to. No way around it. That yeah. I, mean, I know. It, but I think there are some sophisticated septic
1: systems that prevent some of that, but I, 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 we don't have that.
0: Yeah. Good times. So that's that's really a, a fantastic point. I hadn't thought about that.
1: Yeah, you know, it's the things that you think, you think that farming is the challenge of growing things, but there are so many ancillary challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like you said, that's what you spend so much of your time doing.
0: That is the truth. Thanks so much to Tamar for coming to join us. She's got this fantastic wealth of knowledge. And if you have Twitter, I strongly recommend giving her a follow. There's a link to her Twitter and more in the episode notes. Talking about agriculture and the environment and climate and all that stuff can be super depressing, not gonna lie. So I love any chance to dig into all this good stuff that we're just learning how to do in the ocean because there are so many opportunities to do cool regenerative stuff there. And I think it's gonna be really important as we go in the future. Thanks so much for listening. Catch you next time.